Welcome to Breast Cancer Update Surgical Edition. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with Dr. Shauna Willey from Lombardi Comprehensive Cancer Center in Washington, D.C., and to begin, she presented a patient from her practice. This is a 58-year-old woman who came to me already diagnosed with ductal carcinoma in situ in the left breast. And in the course of her workup, we found that she had other MRI abnormalities. Her MRI had been done before I had seen her. And so she had additional biopsies done, one on the left side that, in addition to the DCIS, showed columnar cell change, and then one on the right side that showed a papillary lesion. And so this is kind of a complex, busy breast that I think breast surgeons are faced with all the time. What do we do with all these lesions? This is a woman who happened to have Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry. She had gotten four years of HRT, so I think those are important parts of her medical history. Her family history was actually negative, but there was colon cancer in the family, and she wanted to have genetic testing prior to having surgery because of her Ashkenazi Jewish ethnicity, but her genetic testing was negative. This was a somewhat anxious patient who really agonized about every single decision that she had to make. But ultimately, I recommended that we excise all three lesions, although I wouldn't necessarily always excise columnar cell change. She had a lot going on in her breasts, and she did have the DCIS and a papillary lesion. So we excised all of those. What were the size of her breasts, and how important was it to her to retain her breasts? Her breasts were a B slash C. She's a very fit, thin woman, and cosmesis was incredibly important to her. She was very focused on maintaining the normal shape of her breast. So I was under the wire to do a good excision, clear margins without altering the shape of her breast. Fortunately, her area of DCIS was less than two centimeters, and although her breast was not large, I was able to excise her breast. And at her last visit with me, she was exclaiming about how happy she was over the cosmesis. So I think that's an important thing to take into account. The other two sites were very small excisions, really just to be confirmatory to what the core biopsy had shown and to make sure there was no upgrade. On her final pathology, we were able to get clear margins with her DCIS. However, we did find that she had LCIS and really had atypia in both breasts. So this is a patient who already has DCIS. She's at high risk of developing breast cancer, invasive breast cancer, and is very anxious and concerned about making clinical decisions. What was the ER on the tissue? It was 100%, and her PR was 70%. So it sounds like when you saw this lady post-op, maybe you still were wondering what kind of cosmetic result you're going to get long-term, and I'm sure the issue of radiation therapy came up. The issue of radiation came up, and I would say that my standard recommendation and what I tell patients is the standard of care is to have radiation therapy, and in her case, I felt very strongly about endocrine therapy. With all the atypia that she had, the LCIS, the DCIS, I felt that if she was going to do one intervention, I'd actually probably feel that she would benefit more from the endocrine therapy than from the radiation therapy. She is a patient who wants information, and I talked with her about doing an oncotype DCIS, and she very much wanted an oncotype DCIS done. So she was reluctant to have radiation therapy? She wanted as much 
information as she could get before she decided to have radiation. Initially, she saw several radiation oncologists, and she actually was seen for proton beam because she thought that might be the latest and greatest for DCIS, but was dissuaded from that from the physician that she consulted with. You know, as a medical oncologist, I'm kind of curious, when you look at a patient like that, if this patient were to have radiation therapy, would you anticipate that it would compromise the cosmetic result? It absolutely would. The patients who don't have radiation always look better than patients who have had radiation. Do you think that's more of an issue in a smaller-breasted woman? Well, the volume loss is accentuated by radiation in a smaller-breasted woman, but in a larger-breasted woman, they actually get more radiation toxicity with edema because the skin envelope needs to get so much radiation to give whole breast radiation to the entire breast. So it's interesting that you got a Oncotype DCIS. I don't really hear too much about that. I don't know how often it's being used. I get the feeling nowhere near like it is with invasive disease, but are you using it in your practice? I use it selectively in a case like this where in my heart, I think the patient may not get that much benefit from radiation. I mean, all patients will have a lower risk of recurrence if they get whole breast radiation. But the question becomes how much reduction in their baseline risk, and what is the baseline risk? And I think that's the value of Oncotype DCIS. It doesn't tell you whether radiation is going to work or not, like the Oncotype DX does. It really gives you two values. It tells you what the risk of a DCIS recurrence is and what the risk of an invasive recurrence is. So that gives you numbers based on the historical data of patients who were not treated with radiation, what their risk of recurrence was, looking at that 12-gene score. Globally, then, when you look at that number in your mind, do you say radiation will cut it in half or what? That's what I typically will counsel the patients about. And I typically will counsel them that the endocrine therapy will cut it in half also. So, you know, when the Ocotype came out with invasive disease, people started saying, well, you use it when it's going to make a difference and how people are going to make a decision. If they already know what they're going to do, you don't need to use it. I think it would probably apply here. But I think it's interesting what her numbers are and what she did. Maybe you can talk about that. Yeah, so her Ocotype came back as 28, which is not incredibly low. Her risk of any local event, and that's a combined DCIS invasive event, was 14%. Her risk of an invasive local event, which is the one we really care about, was only 6%. Now, in my mind, that's a little bit on the high side. And I mean, I've that's, see- that's not what you want to see, right? Well, it's not incredibly high, but I think it's a good talking point for a patient to say, okay, even with radiation, if you decrease that by 50%, you don't get to zero. You're at 7% and 3%. And I think patients need to understand there is nothing we do that reduces their risk of a new event or a recurrence by 100%. But on the other hand, you know, you would guess that this lady would have a absolute 3% chance of avoiding an invasive local recurrence with radiation therapy, and yet she chooses not to have radiation, which certainly is her right. I guess it could have been a lot higher. Maybe that would have prompted her to really do it. I don't know how much higher you can get. And certainly if it was a lot lower, then probably you would have felt a lot better. Well, I think that's exactly right. One thing that I think is also important when you're looking at these kinds of patients is how their DCIS was detected. 
Because if you have a small area of DCIS and the imaging predicted that small area, I feel more comfortable for going radiation. This is also a patient, however, that understood that if she had radiation and had a recurrence, she would absolutely need a mastectomy. Whereas if she had not had radiation and had a recurrence, she could have a re-excision and then have radiation. So let me ask you, if you accept, of course, maybe these numbers are just numbers, but hopefully they're pretty close. But if you accept that untreated, she has a 6% risk of invasive local recurrence, first of all, is that with endocrine therapy or just baseline? Endocrine therapy was not mandated in the validation studies. Some patients in those studies did get endocrine therapy and some did not. It was not stratified or validated in that study. It wasn't mandated. So maybe it's not perfect science, but if you say you're looking at 6%, first of all, that's going to get knocked down to some extent by the endocrine therapy. Exactly. So that decreases with the radiation is going to bring on board. So, okay, it seems like a reasonable decision. But then it's interesting what happened to her when she went on endocrine therapy. Well, it is interesting. So she's 58. We thought she was postmenopausal. She went on an astrazole, which she took for three months, and then she had a period. Wow. And so her medical... How long had it been since she had a menstrual period? Well, it had not been all that long. I mean, she was late as far as menopausal. I think she was 55 when she'd last had a period. But it is interesting and whether, I mean, who knows why that happened. It's kind of scary. I mean, you don't want to be given an AI to somebody who's having menstrual periods. Exactly. So I'm sure that made you uh, a little uncomfortable. So she starts it, she gets her period, you put her on tamoxifen. I see you put a note in here. Is it, she felt suicidal on an astrazole? Yeah. Again, this was a highly anxious patient to begin with, but she found she couldn't tolerate psychologically the anastrozole. And as soon as she went off of it, she felt better psychologically. Wow. wow. And that's not what I would consider a common side effect of anastrozole. I've never heard that, actually. I mean, maybe, was she depressed? I would say it's more anxiety than depression. Huh, wow, interesting. So now she's on the tamoxifen and doing okay? She's doing okay. She's quite happy with her decisions. She's quite happy with the process she went through. And I agree with you that 6% risk of invasive recurrence may seem high. On the other hand, if you can knock that down with tamoxifen, we can safely say by 50%. So she's down to 3%. As I tell patients, that's probably lower than baseline risk or at least at baseline risk for somebody this age. You know, listening to this case, I mean, it really does, like I said, I kind of like, I don't really hear too much about Oncotype DCIS and yet... It seemed like it was really helpful in this patient. I think it was, and that's how I use it. I don't certainly order it on every single patient. I don't order it on an ERPR negative patient because I think those are totally different DCIS cases biologically. But on these low to intermediate grade, when we're really struggling with how much we need to treat these patients, I mean, if you look at this a different way, 97 women would have gotten radiation without any benefit. And that's the expense and the toxicity of radiation, although there are some analyses of the Oncotype DCIS score that it's not really been shown to be cost-effective. I think those studies are hard to do, but it's been done. So speaking of radiation therapy, I just want to interject a question I had after I was looking through some of the work you've done, 
which has been a long time since I heard about interoperative radiation therapy in the TARGET trial. I remember, it seemed like a long time ago, I interviewed Mike Baum from the UK. I think he started the TARGET trial, and then I see that you actually were involved with that. Can you provide an update on interoperative radiation therapy? Well, we're still doing it in highly selected patients, and actually I think it's a wonderful option to offer the correct patient. Target A, which was done in mostly Europe, was designed as a non-inferiority trial, and there's some argument as to how all the statistics worked out with that study, but they actually treated a broader set of patients than we select in the patients that we treat. And our selection criteria are that we limit it to women over 50, we want them to be ERPR positive, HER2 negative, only invasive ductal carcinoma, node negative. So these are likely the most favorable patients as far as recurrence rates. So, for example, how many of these procedures have you done in the last year? We do about 75 a year at really? our institution. Wow. Yes. Yeah. What about the rest of the United States? I think it's very regional. And of course, there's two other methods for delivering intraoperative radiation therapy. We have the intrabeam device. Can I talk about sure, sure. brands? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Intrabeam device. And then there's a Mobitron device, which is a linear accelerator in the operating room. And then there's another device called Zoft. So there's three different ways to deliver intraoperative radiation therapy. I cannot tell you globally what percentage of patients who are getting radiation are getting intraoperative radiation therapy. I mean, but I think how many centers have the equipment? Do you have any idea? Is it widespread? Is it available? It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty common. Really? Yes. In the community also? Yes, in the community. So first of all, why not in DCIS, incidentally? Well, we actually are looking at using it in DCIS on protocol. We do all of our IORT right now in a registry that we're doing with UCSF, with Mike Alvarado as the PI on that. It's called Target US. So it's really a registry that we're entering patients prospectively in. So can you describe a typical scenario where a patient comes in, you decide you want to do this, and what happens? Yes. So a typical scenario would be a 60-year-old woman who is diagnosed with a 1.5-centimeter invasive ductal carcinoma. We verify that it's ERPR positive, HER2 negative. And by the way, we didn't always specify PR positive, but that was actually a subgroup that seemed to have a slightly higher recurrence rate, realizing you shouldn't always do subset analyses, but did seem to have a slightly higher recurrence rate in the Target A study. So we've specified those as the most ideal patients. I will counsel the patient. They will see our radiation oncologist before we go to the operating room. If the patient decides they want radiation, then we go to the operating room as we normally would. And I personally do my sentinel lymph node biopsy prior to delivering the IORT. And I do a frozen section in that setting because if they have a positive node, I will offer them whole breast radiation afterwards rather than do the IORT. However, if you get into a situation where either you don't do a frozen section or you find out after the fact that your node is positive, the IORT can actually serve as your boost. So it's not wasted, as I tell the patients. It still saves them a week of radiation, the boost dose, but then they would go on to get whole breast radiation in the node-positive setting. 
What exactly happens? How is it actually done if the patient, let's say, is no negative? So once we have done the sentinel node biopsy, we've done the lumpectomy, there's a machine that's rolled in. There's a physicist and the radiation oncologist come into the operating room. There are different sizes of applicators that are based on the size of your cavity that range in size from three centimeters to five centimeters. So I measure the cavity. We test to make sure that the applicator fits tightly because you don't want air in the cavity. You want to be able to oppose the tissues around the ball. And we then put a purse string in so that the tissue is snugged up around the neck of the applicator. We do an ultrasound to measure the skin to applicator distance, and you want that to be at least seven millimeters. Five millimeters is just the very minimum that you can tolerate. A centimeter is ideal. We then, the radioactive source is actually loaded in the machine inside the applicator. So that's all put together while we're in the operating room once we've decided on what size applicator we're going to use. The skin edges are then protected. They're everted and a moist saline gauze is placed around it because you don't want to burn the skin edges. And then the physicist calculates the time of radiation. So 20 grays are delivered. The average time is probably a 20 minute time range but it can range from about 17 minutes to 55 minutes, depending on the size of the applicator. What is the issue in terms of radiation control of people in the area? We actually empty the operating room. We have screens in the operating room, but we actually set things up so that the patient's vital signs and, and anesthesia machine can be monitored by the anesthesiologist through a window. And there's all the radiation safety precautions. The physicist and the radiation safety officer are monitoring whether there's any radiation leak out of the operating room. And we all stand outside the operating room waiting for the radiation to be delivered. I would say the average amount of time is 18 to 22 minutes, which seems like a long time to keep somebody under general anesthesia. But on the other hand, if it saves them daily radiation treatments for six weeks, it's a pretty good deal for the patients. I was thinking of that term quality that you know we've been hearing about in terms yes. of cost versus, I guess it would be less expensive, or is it? It is less expensive. And actually that has been maybe some of the reason you might not hear as much about it or may not be embraced as much by radiation oncologists. You know, there's always that question if you're doing yourself out of business, should you be doing that? But fortunately, I work with some great radiation oncologists who embraced this the minute they saw it and realized the value of it. And again, I stress, these are highly selected patients. So we were talking before about the cosmetic impact of external beam radiation therapy with your first patient. What about cosmetic issues? What do you see with intraoperative? And what happens if you get it too close to the skin? So I am absolutely thrilled with what the cosmetic outcomes are with these patients. You know, when you do a lumpectomy and you don't do radiation, you can really preserve the form of the breast. You can create a skin envelope that looks absolutely natural. You may notice loss of volume. It's sometimes hard to make up for loss of volume, but form can be preserved. With IORT, we're able to close the cavity so we don't have a divot or a dimple in the breast. And the radiation effect is fairly minimal. It really is one centimeter outside the cavity so that you can restore these breasts to pretty much normal appearance. If it is too close to the skin, you can get some 
skin changes. You can actually get skin burns. I fortunately haven't had any of those because I stick to the rules, so to speak. But on occasion, if you have a fairly superficial lesion, you can get some skin edema. But as I say to the patient, if you think of a three or four centimeter area of skin edema compared to a whole breast of skin edema, it's a good analogy for what they would have experienced in the whole breast. I don't know whether they have any point-counterpoint discussions at surgical meetings. I've seen these in the past about all kinds of controversies in breast cancer. But are there people out there who question the use of this procedure in terms of efficacy? Absolutely. When you use low-risk patients, you'd have to do this gigantic study for 20 years that we'll never see. So do people say, I don't think it works as well? Well, there are people who say that, and they point to the studies that came out of the Elliott trial, which was using the Mobitron and Target A. Elliott actually showed inferiority. But I will say that their recurrence rate in their whole breast radiation patients were so incredibly low that they're not numbers that we replicate here. So there's some question as to why their recurrence rates were so incredibly low. That being said, we kind of put IORT in the category of partial breast irradiation. And there are lots of studies that show partial breast irradiation is at least equivalent to whole breast radiation, whether it's delivered with a balloon, whether it's delivered with, I mean, there's all kinds of things, seeds, cyber knife, all kinds of devices. The difference with the IORT is there are some people who say you don't get enough depth of penetration so you don't really reduce the risk enough. There are some people, interestingly enough, who say, well, these are probably patients who didn't need radiation to begin with. But I would contend in our country, all of these patients get whole breast radiation or get a recommendation for whole breast radiation unless they're incredibly old. And I just saw a patient who's 85 years old. I just saw her on Monday. She has a second breast cancer. I operated on her first breast cancer five years ago. She developed this breast cancer, it became clinically evident a month after she stopped her anastrozole. She was on five years of anastrozole. She now has a 1.2 centimeter invasive ductal carcinoma, ERPR positive, HER2 negative. And to me, the decision is, do we need radiation at all? So now I'm having discussions with our radiation oncologist. She's got a very good performance score. She drives herself. She's probably got 10 to 15 years longevity. So the notion that there are patients based on specific age who we should omit certain therapies on is very difficult to determine. Although, you know, I have this fantasy of this 85-year-old lady coming in 30 times to get radiation therapy as opposed to having her surgery extended by 20 minutes. Pretty big difference. I think it's a huge difference. So if the choice is no radiation versus or IORT versus whole breast, absolutely, let's do IORT. But if a radiation oncologist would look at her and say, she really doesn't need radiation, obviously that'd be the best. But in my practice, I see really no age limit on who they're recommending radiation for. To what extent are you using partial breast radiation and what technique? I don't do much partial breast radiation anymore because I've really replaced that with IORT. It's really very much the same selection criteria. And I used to... I mean, I'm old enough, I did mammocyte. I did that, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, whenever it first started. And then I transitioned to using Savvy because I did like the fact that you could adjust the radiation dose based on the superficiality of the tumor. I do see patients who have chronic seromas. 
They do have some toxicities associated with that. Granted, they're all local toxicities, but I think I'm much happier with IORT, I will tell you that. Any idea, or maybe there have been surveys done, American Society of Breast Surgery, I don't know, in terms of the amount of partial breast radiation, the amount of IORT, and the techniques used. Right now, are most people using external beam partial breast radiation or these other balloons? Well, in the NSABP trial that looked at partial breast radiation that Bob Kusky was the PI on, I believe the number was about 75% external beam. And that is easiest for people to deliver because it sure. comes from the radiation oncologist. The patient doesn't have to have something put in. We actually have an interesting kind of pilot program using CyberKnife for partial breast. The advantage of that is you can target it very well. We put gold fiducials in, and so you get tracking and targeting very well with the CyberKnife. Not sure about the cost effectiveness, but as a pilot, I think it's an interesting concept. Let's talk about another one of your cases. How about this patient with a HER2 positive tumor? This is a 57-year-old woman. She had a 1.5 centimeter suspicious mass located in the right upper outer quadrant of her breast. And a core needle biopsy showed this to be ER5 to 10%, PR1 to 5%, HER2 3 plus. She also had a suspicious axillary lymph node and that was core biopsied and that was positive for HER2 positive breast cancer. So this is a woman that I think is interesting because this patient could have gone on and had surgery. She could have had breast conservation. There would have been nothing wrong with that option. But it's a patient that I feel pretty strongly about preoperative chemotherapy should be considered in because of her HER2 positivity and her node positivity. Just out of curiosity, would you feel the same way if the tumor were triple negative, ERPR negative, HER2 negative? Yes, I would feel exactly the same way. I feel that those are two groups of patients, two subtypes that the preoperative chemotherapy gives us a lot of information, and it perhaps will benefit patients, especially if they get a pathologic complete response. We've never proven that, of course, but I think there is a trend towards that. And actually, I was going to ask you about a paper that just came out that Monica Morrow did with a couple other people in JAMA Oncology, axillary node management following neoadjuvant chemotherapy, a review, and really gets into, before we even get into this case, in terms of what your thinking was, from what I have heard, particularly talking to surgeons and even surveying them, people are buying into the concept of downstaging. So if you know this lady has an axillary node involved, but if you can clean that up with a preoperative chemo, you can avoid axillary dissection. Is that the way you approach these patients? Well, that's how I do approach it. Although I have to say that I prefer them, and we can talk about the trials that she participated with, but I really prefer them to enroll in these clinical trials until we have the answers. Because I think this is a subset of patients that we can't necessarily extrapolate the known data to this group. These people have different cancers. They're node positive. And although we can downstage them, and in my heart of hearts, I believe that we can limit axillary dissections, I feel that we need to prove that and not be too hasty to extrapolate from node negative studies. I guess the other thing, because we've surveyed both surgeons and oncologists about this issue, and what we hear them say is, yes, if you can take somebody with a positive node, make them negative and do sentinel node, 
avoid axillary dissection, but they're usually not too excited about it when it's ER positive, HER2 negative. It's more the HER2 positive and the triple negative where they know they get a lot of action in the neoadjuvant pre-op setting, but ER positive, HER2 negative, not so much. Is that, again, your thought? I think you're absolutely right. We are a site for the iSPY trial. And so whenever we see somebody who's a stage two, we will screen them for iSPY. And of course, one of the entry criteria is to perform a mamma print on those patients. If they're low mamma print, they are not entered into the novel agent arm or randomized to the novel agent arm, but they are monitored. And they could get preoperative chemotherapy or they could go straight to surgery. But the patients who have a high mamma print can be entered into iSPY. And so I think we shy away because we don't actually separate out those two subtypes very well preoperatively. <laughs> no, I think you're absolutely right. And actually, even to elaborate more on what we've seen when we ask people, is that while the attitude is different when it's ER positive, HER2 negative, as opposed to the other two where they just want to give the chemo, whatever, there are a subset of people who are doing genomic assays. Now, you're in the iSPY, so the 70 gene assay there is part of that study. But now it looks like maybe a third or even half of investigators will use more likely actually a 21 gene score in the neoadjuvant setting. If they get a high result, they're more excited about chemo. Low result, they go to surgery and maybe give hormones. Any thoughts about what we know about genomic assays outside a trial setting, actually in clinical practice in the neoadjuvant setting? I actually wish we could incorporate that more seamlessly into the preoperative evaluation. I think one of the downsides is the length of time it takes to get the results back. And patients are eager to get their treatment started, whatever it is. And so it has been a little bit problematic. The turnaround time has gotten a little bit better, but you know, two to three weeks is a long time for a patient to sit in limbo. Yeah, that is a very important practical point. So this lady got a typical pre-op therapy for a patient with HER2-positive disease, chemotherapy, trastuzumab, and pertuzumab, both two anti-HER therapies. What happened? Well, she did great, and we got basically a near-complete radiographic response. And so when I see these patients preoperatively, then I see them halfway through their chemotherapy. We start to plan for surgery. She was motivated for breast conservation, and I generally do a set of imaging at the end of chemotherapy because I want to know about anything I need to deal with in the operating room. But she got a near-complete radiographic response, which actually tends to lag behind the pathologic response. So if you see that good a radiographic response, you almost always have a pathologic complete response. I took her to the operating room. We did a partial mastectomy with wire localization. We localized her clip. I did a sentinel node biopsy on her, and I did that because she elected to participate in the Alliance 11202 trial. And this is how I kind of sell to patients they can avoid an axillary lymph node dissection. At least I feel most comfortable offering no axillary lymph node dissection in this setting. So just to review the schema of that trial, in a patient like this, they are rendered clinically node negative after their chemotherapy, and we go to the operating room, and if their sentinel lymph node is negative, they're actually no longer in 11202 because 11202 is looking at the persistently positive sentinel lymph node after chemotherapy. However, if their node is negative, then they can go on to 
B-51, NSABB B-51, and we can talk about that, but with 11202, if their node is positive, persistently positive after preoperative chemotherapy, then they're randomized to get either a full axillary lymph node dissection or not. And we know, incidentally, that in that situation, when we ask investigators, both surgeons and oncologists, because it's kind of like different than in the adjuvant situation where we accept the positive note and don't do a dissection. But what we see is when we ask people, okay, you give them new adjuvant therapy and the note's still positive, they're like, they get axillary dissection. Is that what you would consider standard? I would consider that standard, and that's what I would do in a patient who did not want to enroll in this trial. So this patient really then what has a 50% chance of avoiding an axillary dissection, which she would have gotten in sort of standard care. That's exactly right, and that's how I sell this trial to them. <laughs> that's interesting. And then what did she get randomized to? Well, she was node negative. Oh, in NSABP then, they go on oh, to Oh, yeah, get... so she was negative. She so was she... negative, so she was out of 11202. And but then, then she did participate in NSABP B51, and in that trial, they get randomized to axillary nodal radiation versus not, and she got randomized to radiation to the axilla. So again, if you think about the design of that study, and I'm thinking also about Monica Morrow's paper, kind of what it's saying is that sentinel node after neoadjuvant chemotherapy is a reasonable thing to do. And if it's negative, you can avoid axillary dissection. I mean, that's not the point of this study, but if you look at the design, isn't that sort of implicit? It is. And I think that's why these two studies really have to be considered together, because they're really trying to answer the question that we now have, which is basically, does Z11 apply to the node-positive neoadjuvant patient? Right, right. I mean, that's really the study design. Although I think by having B51 randomized to axillary radiation or not, we won't get into the same problem that we got into with Z11 when we didn't really know what the axillary treatment was. I mean, it wasn't mandated with the Z11 design. It was really up to the radiation oncologists. So I think we're going to have hopefully cleaner data with this. So I see that this patient now has got beyond all that. She got a year of trastuzumab. She's on anastrozole as adjuvant therapy. Interesting, too, you know, we just finally saw the adjuvant pertuzumab data. This whole thing that this patient went through getting neoadjuvant pertuzumab, it's been going on now for a couple of years. We've been waiting to see what happened. Adding pertuzumab in the adjuvant setting kind of helped, but it wasn't any kind of a home run. You know, right. Reduced recurrences like by 20%. Now people are not sure what to do. Maybe they're just going to give it in the node positive. Actually, if you think about this lady going back to when she first presented, so she had a positive node, she was high risk, but yet I guess your oncologist decided, well, of course, it was a couple of years ago. We didn't have the data. Yeah, I, we didn't. I, I don't know if she presented today whether they might try adding in. How did she do on the neoadjuvant pertuzumab? The one thing I've heard a little bit about is diarrhea. Did she have that? You know, she did not have significant problems. They do sometimes have diarrhea. And however, I find that our medical oncologists are managing it pretty well. Yeah, yeah. They're no. kind of jumping on it and they're decreasing it to tolerable levels for the patients. Yeah, I think they're a lot more aware of it. But it is interesting. We'll see what happens over the next couple of years to patients like this. Yes. Are they going to try to get a little bit of an extra bump? You know, the other thing that happened, I'm curious what your thoughts are, is in addition to the pertuzumab data coming out, because people were like, didn't know what to do. There was no data. Some people were using it, some not. But the other thing is like out of the blue, I mean, to me, neratinib, tyrosine kinase inhibitor, 
has now been approved post-adjuvant therapy. So your patient went through a year of trastuzumab. Theoretically, now they would be eligible for a year of this tyrosine kinase inhibitor, kind of, I guess, a little bit like lapatinib, to try to knock the recurrence rate a little bit lower down. Any thoughts about that strategy? Are you thinking about it? Are your oncologists thinking about it? You know, we haven't talked specifically about it. And I think in the high-risk patients, you know, if somebody has a PATH-CR, how much benefit are they going to get from neratinib? But in the high-risk patient who has residual disease, has been refractory to whatever they've been given, assuming, I mean, even in this setting, if that patient still had positive node or tumor in her breast, I would certainly consider adding on something adjuvantly. And of course, I mean, it is oral. But it does also have some toxicities. Absolutely. You know, and again, diarrhea. Again, yeah. you know, you have to use preemptive treatment. But I mean, on the other hand, it's oral. You can stop it if you really haven't. Yes. But yeah, no, what I'm hearing about are actually more typical case that I'm hearing people thinking about both pertuzumab adjuvantly and even neratinib later is the multiple positive node patient, two nodes or more. And it's interesting, you know, we all think that anti-HER therapy is such a home run, but when you ask people, and I don't know what your estimate would be, you have a patient who starts out with two positive nodes. Let's forget the neoadjuvant, just standard adjuvant situation, two positive nodes. They get their adjuvant chemo, trastuzumab, even pertuzumab. Let's say they get all that. What would you say the residual risk of recurrence is after they're done all that? Oh, wow. That's a tough, <laughs> that's can, a tough number to come up with. I for me. I can tell you that when I've asked people to estimate it, I mean, this is like totally, you know, I don't know where it's exact. I hear numbers like 10, 12% that you don't get rid of all the risks. No, by that's, giving, that's absolutely and, true. And you know, getting back to your patient, you know, it's all this relative risk, like your patient earlier, the yes. radiation going from six to three. But I mean, if you can go from 10% down to six for a pill, Maybe people are going to think about it. I don't know. I'd be really curious to see how people are going to use it. It will be. And I also think that when HER2-positive patients recur or develop metastatic disease, it's bad. I mean, they often get brain involvement. I mean, there's, it's not a pretty sight when they have recurrences. Right. So we'll see. It's going to be very interesting. These two things kind of happen at the same time in her 2 yeah. So we'll see over the next year or so how people are responding to it. Why don't we talk a little bit about your 37-year-old lady? This was a fairly recent case that I saw. She has a long history of endometriosis and infertility, and she actually developed this breast lump while she was trying to get pregnant with IVF. And admittedly, probably ignored this breast mass because she was so focused on her fertility issues. But she came in with quite a large mass in the upper portion of her left breast on ultrasound at measure 4.9 centimeters, and a core needle biopsy was done, which showed this to be ER positive, PR 100%, and HER2 negative, KS67 was 25%. We did an MRI. It showed, as it typically does, that the breast mass was even larger at about 5.5 centimeters. And this was a patient that had quite a small breast. She had a B-cup breast. She has a 5-centimeter mass in it. The mass is visible. And yet she is more focused on her fertility issues than on her breast cancer. She's like, just treat the breast cancer so I can go on and try to get pregnant. And we did discuss doing preoperative chemotherapy in her. She was clinically node negative. The MRI did not show any axillary lymphadenopathy. And the plan that we eventually formulated that she felt was best for her was 
We just decided to do a mastectomy, no reconstruction. We really thought this was a patient who probably was going to get radiation. With that size tumor, you would expect the 50% chance of having some occult lymph node involvement, if not obvious lymph node involvement. And on her MRI, there was concern that she might have muscle involvement, although the muscle did not enhance. The tumor was abutting the muscle, although I will say that the tumor was occupying the whole thickness of her breast. So we were talking before about genomic assays in the neoadjuvant setting. Did you consider that in her? You know... We talked about it, but this, again, she was, my next cycle is coming up, and I want to time the surgery around that cycle. I mean, this really is the focus for her. Hmm. I mean, it's interesting. When you talk to patients, you kind of get a sense of what direction you're going to go with your recommendations for them. I mean, I think most patients, if they were told that by avoiding chemotherapy, hormone therapy, they might be losing, let's just say, a one out of 10 chance of avoiding recurrence. That's huge, okay? Do you think that this patient was so motivated about having a child that she would have foregone that one out of 10 chance to you know, avoid that therapy? You know, I think that she really felt that she didn't fall into that category because she was perceiving this as a month, you know, a finite period of time that she was going to delay treatment. And her whole mindset was to get the cancer out. I did have her meet with a medical oncologist, and she wanted to have surgery first because then she had the opportunity to have more cycles for IVF. Well, I guess my point is, if you could figure out whether or not she would have, let's say, accepted chemotherapy adjuvantly, you know, that's what I mean. If you go, if you say to her, look, there could be a situation where chemotherapy might, let's say, relate cause a one in 10 chance you would avoid recurrence. So if she would say, well, wait a minute, if it's that big, I'll go through it and I'll take my chances in terms of uh, pregnancy. Because if she would, I would argue that she could have had it pre-op. Absolutely. You know, if she had a high recurrence score and you know that right now, why not give it to her now? You're going to give it to her post-op anyhow. That's exactly right. But on the other hand, and I tried to get her to downstage. I was actually worried that she was even operable. Absolutely. It sounds like a real concern. I mean, I really had to, I had to take enough skin so that she had a very tight closure, but I was able to do it. And as it turned out, I think that was the right choice for her, actually. And I don't think we did anything that made her chances of survival lower. I mean, the good thing is I see she had an archetype and it was low. And it was low, and that's now the question. You know, you got a 37-year-old with a low oncotype. She's seen two different medical oncologists. Actually, I was kind of surprised I wasn't going to order an oncotype on her. I was just thinking she's going to get chemotherapy. And she went to see the first medical oncologist, and they said, well, let's order an oncotype. But that being said, I think the patient is going to have chemotherapy, even with this low... Really? Yeah, I think she is. I wow. mean, she's, she's getting her fertility issues sorted out. Wow. and I, I mean, she's still in the process of deciding. But it's a t- this is a tough call, I think. Well, I mean, her recurrence score is 16, so it's low. But, I mean, it could be lower. But It could be lower. 16 is pretty low. And you wonder whether there was any point in doing it, if she's still going to get chemo. You're getting back to this, is it a sort of deal changer? But she's also going to have to think about hormone therapy. So she's premenopausal, right? Yeah. Yes, she so is. So she's heading for tamoxifen, which is going to be an issue in terms of, you know, if she wants to get pregnant, she's going to have to stop it. 
Well, actually, it's interesting. They have used letrozole during her fertility treatments. Well, that's really fascinating. I am curious. Again, we just did a survey asking people the way they approach genomic testing. On this situation, you used it in her. She had a 4.3 centimeter node negative tumor. Yes, we had not said that her nodes were negative, but I think we need to be sure we specify that. Well, that does bring up what I was going to ask you, which I find it really interesting that you look at, for example, the ASCO guidelines, and they say don't do any genomic assays if the patient's node positive. So we know now we have data with 21 gene recurrence score. Now we have data with a 70 gene. They say don't do it. And yet when you ask investigators, at least half of them will do it, let's say with one positive node. What about your center? How are you approaching this issue? Who to do a genomic assay and which one do you use? Well, it's an interesting question. And I would say that we're doing it really on a case-by-case basis. And I find that our medical oncologists are probably using it in settings where they're trying to change a patient's mind or they're trying to justify not giving chemotherapy. (laughs) You know, somebody who has comorbid conditions might be older. And let's say they had an invasive lobular with two positive lymph nodes. That might be a patient with a low score that you'd be perfectly happy with endocrine therapy for. Because you've got both the clinical and the biology on your side there. Yes. And, you know, I guess it is interesting. Of course, it's a very complicated decision in terms of what you do. What about the assay itself? There was just an update to these guidelines that I was talking about. Matter of fact, I just interviewed the person who was in charge of it, Ian Kropp, yesterday. And they specifically updated their guidelines to include the 70-gene assay because they had the big MINDEC study, first major multi-thousand study looking at the 70-gene assay. And they kind of said that would be most helpful in the node-positive situation. Not that you can tell whether chemo is going to help or not, but you can maybe identify people with low scores. Yes. Um, What about choosing? Which assay are your oncologists or is your team looking to? Are you sticking with the 21 gene or starting to use 70 gene more? Well, as I said, in the iSpy patients, we're using the 70 gene. I would say that our oncologists are sticking with the 21 gene and the patients who meet the criteria, ERP or positive or two negative. There is the occasional time where, you know, you might have a reason that you want to do a 70 gene assay in somebody who doesn't meet the criteria for the 21 gene assay. One thing I just want to get an update on, we've been talking about in this series for years, is the issue of margins. And, you know, there was this paper a couple years ago, kind of, to me as an oncologist, supporting the NSABP on no tumor on the ink, minimal margin. Monica Morrow had a presentation, and I don't know if you saw it or aware of it. She looked at what the impact was of that paper. And, you know, we were talking about, everybody was talking about those guidelines that came out and mastectomy. And actually, if I read that correctly, it looked like as these guidelines were implemented, there was maybe less surgery, less mastectomy. Is that kind of what's been going on? Yeah, I absolutely feel that surgeons have embraced, especially in the invasive cancers. I think we all felt that because we believed the NSABP guidelines. And yet there had been a time where the margins got expanded a bit. And I think there was a lot of validation with that consensus paper that they wrote showing that you could accept no ink on tumor. And absolutely, there's fewer re-excisions, fewer mastectomies, and I don't think we're going to see more recurrences. Time will tell, I think.